Section 10 of the Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Byzantine Empire The Rear Guard of European Civilization by Edward Ford. Section 10. The Iconoclasts. Leo's natural successor was his only son, Constantine VI, but he was not to obtain the supreme power unopposed. Artavasdos, general of the Armeniac theme under Anastasius II, had supported Leo III in 717. Leo had given him to wife his only daughter, Anna, and had created him Kuropalates and Count of the Opsikians. He possibly considered himself, as husband of the great emperor's elder child, more entitled to the throne than Constantine. His elder son, Nicephorus, was general of Thrace. The younger, Nikitas, commanded the Armeniacs. He secured also the support of Theophilus, prefect of the capital. Whether he really had any strong belief in iconoduli is to be doubted, but he expressed himself in sympathy with the opponents of Leo's policy, and the revolt against Constantine may be termed an iconodulic one. Constantine had determined to make an expedition against the Saracens in 741. He moved to the plain of Crassos with his guards and sent orders to Artavastos to join him with the Opsikians. Artavastos killed Bizer, the patrician who brought the order, assumed the diadem and made a dash at his brother-in-law's camp. Constantine only saved himself by a headlong flight to Amorium. There he was safe. The garrison swore to defend him to the death. Artavasdos returned to Constantinople and was proclaimed emperor amidst the rejoicings of the Iconodules. But the Anatoliki and Thracians would have none of him and marched to the rescue of Constantine in Amorium. Constantine, with his army in a high state of enthusiasm, advanced to Chrysopolis, but he found Artavastos too strong to be besieged without a fleet or some appearance of disaffection in the capital, of which there was at present none. He therefore withdrew to winter at Amorium, and to call up the Kibirayot fleet and army to his assistance. In the spring of 742, Artavastos advanced to crush him, while Nikitas marched westward with a second large army, composed partly of the fine Armenian troops, partly of levies and mercenaries from Iberia and Armenia. Constantine at Amorium was thus exposed to a convergent attack by vastly superior numbers, but he showed that he possessed all his father's military ability. Artavasdos hoped to force Constantine to dislocate his army and fight both himself and his son, with inferior numbers. Instead of doing so, however, Constantine marched westward with his whole force, and coming up with Artavastos near Sardis, completely defeated him and drove him back on Cyzicus and out of Asia. He then faced round on Nikitas, who was approaching from the northeast and defeated him at Modrine in Bucellarion, after a struggle far harder than the Battle of Sardis, 
for the Armenian troops fought magnificently. Constantin now crossed into Europe and besieged Constantinople, bringing up the Kibirayot fleet to complete the blockade. The citizens deserted to him in crowds as food began to run short. By the admission of his hostile historians, his conduct was humane and forbearing in the extreme. Meanwhile, Nikitas had rallied his beaten army, gathered in reinforcements, and effected a junction with some troops who had escaped the rout of Sardis. He advanced to relieve Constantinople, but near Nicomedia he was met by the indefatigable Constantine, completely defeated and taken prisoner together with the iconodule archbishop of Gangra, who was immediately executed. Nikitas was exhibited in chains before the walls of the capital, and Artavasdos knew that the game was lost. He fled from the city to a fort in Opsikion, where he was captured with his elder son and some of his chief adherents. Constantine entered his capital victorious, after having lost it for two years. He spared the lives of Artavasdos and his sons, but blinded and imprisoned them. The act seems barbarous, but it was perhaps the only alternative to putting them to death, and they have been guilty of treason in an aggravated form. Once firmly seated on the throne, Constantine could take up his father's half-finished work. He had been carefully trained in Leo's methods, and was his not unworthy son and successor, hard-working, hard-fighting, persevering, able, and brave, and not destitute of originality in his designs, if we may be permitted to judge from the fact that he endeavoured to enter into closer relations with the Frankish rulers of the West. Morally, he was certainly the inferior of his father, whose purity even his bitter foes have not impugned. Constantine was distinctly a man of pleasure, somewhat coarse-fibred, occasionally given, as it would seem, to low debauchery, though we need not believe that he was addicted to vice in especially bad forms. His monastic revelers were not men of nice or elevated minds. Such would not have fastened the unsavory epithet of Copronymos on him. He was also, when exasperated by opposition, capable of cruelty though he was equally distinguished on occasion for humanity. On the whole, he gives the impression of being more swayed by passion than his father. His worst political fault was that he could not understand or practice a policy of conciliation, and his violent measures against his opponents did the cause of rational progress far more harm than good. As emperor, he had to maintain the Asiatic border, to secure that of Europe, and to carry on the work of internal development, the last involving a continual struggle against iconoduli. He thus had to face a threefold contest, and that he emerged from it on the whole victorious, says much for his untiring energy. For eleven or twelve years after his victory over Artavasdos, he steadily pursued the policy of his father in religious matters, but probably with a harder hand, and growing more and more exasperated as he found his edicts secretly evaded, and everywhere steadily and fanatically opposed by the monks. The most noteworthy incident of these years was, however, the appearance of the bubonic plague in the empire. It did not have the same terrible effects 
as in the reign of Justinian, the population was better able to recuperate. But nonetheless, it caused great harm. At Constantinople, the loss of life was enormous. The emperor filled the gaps in the population of the capital by introducing settlers from Hellas and the islands. The effect was that it became more Greek than it had ever been, while, on the other hand, the districts from which the immigrants had come were colonized by Slavs, and for the present lost their Hellenic nationality. Externally, Constantine's energies were during this period chiefly directed to the east. The Umeyad line of caliphs was hastening to its end. Civil war distracted the Saracens, and Constantine took advantage of their dissensions to take the offensive. In 745, he overrun Comagene, captured Germanicia and Dolike, and transported the bulk of their Christian inhabitants into the empire. The Caliph Mervan II retaliated by sending an armament of a thousand vessels against Cyprus, but it was caught by the Kibirayot fleet in the harbor of Keramea and almost annihilated A.D. 746. The plague prevented further efforts for some years, and in 750 a disaster was experienced in the west by the final loss of Ravenna, which was taken by King Aistulf of the Lombards. In the same year, the great house of the Umeyad Caliphs came to an end in a deluge of blood, and in 751 Constantine again crossed the Taurus, captured Melitene on the Euphrates, ravaged the border provinces, and took Theodosiopolis. He does not appear to have had any illusions as to the possibility of holding these conquests. He took back with his columns as many as possible of the Christian inhabitants, and distributed them as settlers in his provinces, but he left garrisons in the captured towns. Meanwhile, the opposition of the monks to his iconoclastic religious policy had impelled him to take a decisive step. He summoned in 753 a general council of the church. As a fact, the patriarchs of Jerusalem Alexandria and Antioch declined to attend, and the Pope of Rome not only refused, but anathematized the assembly. But 338 bishops assembled under the presidency of Constantine, Patriarch of Constantinople, and gave decisions entirely in favor of iconoclasm, defining representations of the Savior, as blasphemous pitfalls, because they endeavored to express his human and divine natures in the mere likeness of a man, and so obscured his divinity in his humanity. It declared the worship of images blameworthy, because all adoration, except that paid to the Godhead, savored of heathendom and anthropolatry. It can hardly be doubted that, in the main, these decisions were at least rational, but the Council put itself in the wrong by proscribing religious mimetic art entirely, and by anathematizing the patriarch Germanus, the famous John of Damascus, who upheld iconodulely on the ground that pictures and images inculcated reverential ideas, and George of Cyprus, the three most distinguished of the opponents of iconoclasm. Having obtained the support of the ecclesiastical hierarchy, 
Constantine began a regular persecution of his opponents. He was chary of inflicting the death penalty, but there was a great deal of torture and imprisonment or exile. In 766, the patriarch Constantine was found to be concerned in a conspiracy against the emperor. He was executed under every circumstance of cruelty and ignominy. Several prominent iconodules had already suffered death, and now Constantine gave full way to his feelings of bitterness and appointed the sternest and most uncompromising iconoclasts to command in all the themes. They are said to have carried out their orders with extreme brutality, though it would appear that it was still almost entirely directed against the monastic order. The most prominent of them was Michael Lacanodracon, general of the Thracian theme, who is said, amongst other things, to have burnt or half-burnt many monks alive. In 770 he assembled all the monks and nuns of his theme and gave them the alternative of breach of their vows or immediate exile to Cyprus. Many gave way, but more stood firm and were forthwith deported. Lacanodracon then plundered the religious houses of their valuables, realizing thereby a large sum, destroyed the pictures and relics, pulled down some of the buildings, and converted others to secular uses. Constantine's comment on these violent proceedings was that at last he had found a man after his own heart. On the whole, we can understand the indignation of the monkish analysts. Meanwhile, Constantine was busy in Europe. He was determined to reduce the European lands of the empire to the same state of order as those in Asia Minor. The main obstacle was the presence of the Bulgarian kingdom. For many years it had been on friendly terms with the empire, but the predatory instincts of the people continually gave rise to petty warfare, and when Constantine began to establish a strong military frontier along the Balkans, King Kormisos declared war. The Bulgarians poured through the Balkan passes into Thrace, and were assisted openly or secretly by the Slavs, but they were eventually beaten and forced back. Constantine fortified the passes, and having thus cut off the Bulgarians from communication with the Slavs, marched through the settlements of the latter in 758, and brought them once more under control. Next year he turned against Bulgaria, but his first efforts were unsuccessful. He suffered a severe defeat between Mesembria and Varna, while in Asia the Saracens, under the energetic Caliph Mansur, who had succeeded Abdallah the Bloody in 754, recovered Germanicia and Melitene and defeated the Armeniacs on the Melas. The renewed activity of the Caliphate probably called the emperor to the east, but in 762 he again took to the field and inflicted a great defeat on the Bulgarians and Slavs at Ankialus. He then, in the following year, turned against the Slavs south of Hemus, again reduced them to subjection, and cleared the frontier districts of the brigands, Scamars, who had long infested them. Great severity was exercised towards the prisoners. One notorious chief, a renegade from Christianity, was dissected alive. 
the punishment was not, perhaps, altogether undeserved. But this problematical circumstance cannot be allowed to absolve the emperor from the charge of barbarous cruelty. Meanwhile, Bulgaria was distracted by civil war, and reduced to such a wretched condition that 208,000 Slavs migrated in a body to place themselves under the protection of the empire. They were settled on the Artanas in Bithynia. In 764, Constantine, taking advantage of the dissensions in Bulgaria, invaded the country, killed King Toktu, and wasted the land without mercy right down to the Danube. He intended to complete the conquest in the next year, but his huge flotilla of 2,600 boats were wrecked near Anchialus, and he then abandoned his design and turned his attention to rescuing the survivors of the disaster and securing Christian burial for the dead, thereby greatly increasing his popularity even with iconodulic population of his capital. For some years thereafter, the emperor was busy with his last deadlift attempt to crush iconodulism and monasticism. There was a good deal of guerrilla fighting in the Balkans, but the Bulgarians made no impression on Constantine's strong military frontier. In Asia, he was less successful. In 771, a Saracen army and fleet besieged Sike in Isauria, and the Anatolic, Armeniac, Bukelarian, and Kibirayot themes, marching to its relief, were severely defeated. The Saracens, however, made no use of their victory and withdrew homeward. Next year, a Saracen force made a successful incursion, but on its return was defeated near Mopsuestia with a loss, it is said, of 10,000 men. In 773, a peace was concluded with Telerig, the new king of Bulgaria. The treaty was a mere blind on the part of the latter to cover an invasion of the empire as soon as the large army which Constantine had under arms had been disbanded. The treacherous design became known to the emperor, and when the Bulgarians entered Macedonia, they were suddenly surprised by Constantine at the head of 80,000 men and totally routed. He now determined to make an end to the troublesome half-barbarian state once and for all, but fortune was against him. The march of the great expedition which he had planned was stopped in 774 by the shattering of the fleet which formed part of it in a storm, and in September 775 he was taken ill on his northward march and died on board ship just outside Constantinople. He was only 57, but his strenuous life had no doubt worn him out. He had carried steadily forward the work which his father had so well begun. The empire was well organized, strong to defend itself, and increasing in wealth and prosperity. The defensive services were strong, well-organized, well-trained, and composed in larger measure of native troops than had ever been the case before. The thematic system had been completed, and in Asia alone could put 80,000 men into the field. Literature and art were reviving. Best of all, the whole moral tone of society was greatly improved. To attribute all this to the great iconoclast emperors is, of course, absurd, but they had a very large share 
in this extraordinary revival of an apparently decrepit and half-barbarized state, if they did no more than direct the tendencies of the age, they deserved well of their subjects. Constantine was succeeded by his son Leo, commonly known as the Khazar. His mother, the first of his father's three wives, having been a princess of that nation. He had acted as his father's colleague for several years, and inherited the vigor which was the birthright of his line. But his health was feeble. He was, in fact, consumptive. He was married to a beautiful Greek from Athens, named Irene, destined to a terrible celebrity in history, and to a very undeserved sanctity in the church. By her he had a son, named Constantine, born in 771. The emperor's feeble health made the question of the succession a momentous one. By his other wives, Constantine IV had had several children, including five sons, and Nicephorus and Christophorus, the two eldest of these, who each bore the title of Caesar, conceived themselves entitled to succeed their half-brother. Leo, therefore, crowned the little Constantine VII with great solemnity, and obliged his five uncles to swear allegiance to him. Internally, Leo IV pursued the policy of his father, but with less harshness, he was certainly alive to the possible evil effects of high-handed severity. He stopped the persecution of the monks, though in 777 there was again an increase in the harshness of government measure against them. Leo's severities were rather political than religious in their tendency. He had found that his discontented half-brothers were in league with the iconodule malcontents in a conspiracy to place Nicephorus and Christophorus on the throne. The leading plotters were scourged and banished, but the Caesars were pardoned by their injured half-brother. In 778, Leo collected all the Asiatic themes except the Kibiraiots at the frontier and ordered them into Syria. They were at least 80,000 strong. So great had been the results of the military reforms of Leo III and Constantine VI. The lack of an imperial commander-in-chief rendered the campaign somewhat ineffective. But Comagene was wasted. A great Saracen army defeated it before Germanicia, and a mass of Syrian Christians conducted into the empire and settled in Thrace. The Caliph el-Mahdi replied next year by an invasion of Asia Minor. The Saracen army advanced to Dorileum, but failed to take it and retreated in disorder, suffering heavily from the attacks of the imperial troops. In 780, more vigorous measures were adopted. El-Mahdi's famous son, Harun, was sent to take command, and a great eruption organized. Harun took the frontier fort of Semalus, but another division was defeated by Michael Lacanodracon, and the expedition had no result. In the midst of these events, Leo IV died on September the 8th, leaving his throne to the young Constantine VII, now ten years of age, for whom Irene was to act as regent. Leo was only in his thirty-second year, and his premature death 
though not unexpected, was a grave misfortune for the empire. Irene, an Athenian and a Greek, was naturally enough an iconodule, though she had more or less concealed the fact from her husband and her terrible father-in-law. She was determined to reverse the policy of the iconoclasts, and began by putting a stop to all anti-iconodulic measures of repression. Her position as regent was by no means assured. Nicephorus and Christophorus repaid their half-brother's clemency by resuming their plots as soon as the breath was out of his body, and enlisted in their cause Elpidius, general of Sicily, and several other officers and ministers. But the plot was soon discovered and crushed by Irene, and the Caesars and their three brothers compelled to take holy orders. The other conspirators were for the most part scourged and tortured. Elpidius fled into the caliphate, A.D. 781. Meanwhile, the Saracens, under a general named Abd el-Kabir, invaded Asia Minor. Irene acted with vigor on this occasion. She dared not or would not trust any of the thematic generals, who were all iconoclasts, but the chief command was given to Johannes the Sacilarius, the whole army of Asia. 80,000 strong, was concentrated on the frontier in July, and the Saracens totally routed at Melon. Next year came a turn of fortune. Harun again took the chief command. This time the Saracens crossed the frontier before the themes could concentrate. One division under Rabia ibn Yunz besieged Nakolia without success. A second, under Yahia the Burmeside, was beaten by stout old Michael Lacanodracon. But Harun, with 95,000 men, was able to advance to Chrysopolis, and for the last time a Saracen army saw the city of the Caesars. Tatsatis, the general of the Bucillarians, deserted to Harun, the Slavs in Europe broke out into renewed revolt, and Irene was cowed. She bought a truce for three years at the rate of 70,000 dinars a year. Having in this disgraceful fashion rid herself of Harun, Irene set herself to deal with the Slavs, and in 783, sent Stavrakios, a eunuch of her household, with a large army against them. The campaign was entirely successful. The Slavs in Macedonia, Thessaly, and Hellas were brought into complete subjection to the central government. The work was completed in the following year, when Irene and her son made a progress through the European provinces, and re-established and re-peopled a number of decayed Greek towns. It was natural that the Athenian empress should take a great interest in her own countrymen, and this pacification and reorganization of Macedonia and Greece was the most useful work of her life. Irene endeavoured to follow in Constantine the Sixth footsteps with regard to the West. She entered into friendly relations with Charles the Great, and a treaty was concluded by which the young Constantine was betrothed to Charles's yet younger daughter, Rotrudis. In 784, Paul Patriarch of Constantinople died, and Irene replaced him by Tarasius, 
the first Secretary of State, a known iconodule. She had for some time been carefully preparing the way for a reversal of the iconoclastic policy by dismissing as many as possible of the officials of her husband and father-in-law, but found that there was still much to do. The troops were very largely iconoclast in their sympathies and broke out into repeated tumults. To break their opposition, Irene disbanded them wholesale or dispersed them in distant cantonments, a most ill-advised measure, seeing that the truce with the caliphate expired in 786. Finally, after three years of preparation, an assembly of 367 ecclesiastics gathered under Tarasius at Nicaea in September 787. Its decisions were as anti-iconoclastic as those of the Council of 754 had been anti-iconodulic, and it anathematized all the iconoclast patriarchs. It drew, however, a distinction between the reverence due to the pictured semblance of the deity or saints and the divine worship to be paid to God. Meanwhile, the foreign affairs of the empire were given trouble. In 788, the Bulgarians burst through the Balkans, raided Thrace and defeated Philetos, who commanded its troops on the Strymon. Next year, the Saracens, now ruled by the energetic and cultivated, but cruel and suspicious Harun, Er Rashid invaded Asia Minor and defeated a part of the Eastern Army. In 790, there was a fresh raid by land and sea, and for the first time for many years, a Saracen fleet gained a success, defeating the Kibirayot squadron under Theophilus of Atalia. The admiral was taken prisoner and refusing to abjure Christianity or desert his country's service, was put to death, an act which gives a true impression of the character of the much-lauded butcher of the Barmecides. While foreign affairs were thus in disorder, Irene's position at home was tottering. In 790, Constantine VII, now over twenty years of age, would endure his mother's domination no longer. It cannot be said that his revolt was either premature or undutiful. His first attempt was frustrated. Irene punished his supporters with much severity, and actually imprisoned her son. This, however, was the last straw. The Armeniac troops declared in his favor and marched for the capital. The other corps of the army hastened to join them. Irene, in terror, released her son, who presented himself to the advancing army and was joyfully hailed by them as emperor. He punished his unnatural mother only by confining her for a time, to the precincts of the palace. In 791, the young emperor invaded Bulgaria, now under King Kardam, without result, and then turned to the east and conducted a raid into Cilicia. Next year, he again marched into Bulgaria with disastrous results. He was entirely defeated and lost many of his best officers, including the veteran Michael Lacanodracon, the man after my own heart of Constantine the Sixth. The beaten troops murmured at the emperor's bad generalship, and in the capital 
there was a fresh conspiracy in favor of the five half-brothers of Leo the Fourth. The plot was discovered. Nicephorus was blinded, the tongues of the other four cut out, and all were banished. The act was perhaps justifiable. The princes were incorrigible plotters, but Constantine had evidently inherited the vice of cruelty, whether from his grandfather or his mother, it is difficult to say. Constantine's next blunder was to restore his mother to favor and power. He never appears to have lost his affection for her, and he celebrated the reconciliation by raising a statue of her in the Hippodrome. Irene repaid her unhappy son by resuming her intrigues so soon as she was restored to power. Constantine, meanwhile, diligently continued to dig his own grave. He alienated his faithful Armenian troops by blinding their general, Alexius Musele, who had led them to his assistance in 790. The alleged reason was conspiracy. Next, Constantine, without more reason, became involved in a quarrel with the clergy. We have seen that, as a boy, he had been betrothed to Rotrudis, the daughter of Charles the Great. But after the Council of Nicaea, Irene broke off the engagement and practically forced the unhappy boy into a quasi-marriage with a Paphlagonian girl named Maria. Constantine seems to have felt a sort of romantic affection for his unknown Frankish betrothed, and he soon developed a bitter feeling of hatred for his nominal wife, who was probably as guiltless as, and even more helpless, than himself. His hatred was quickened by his falling in love with Theodota, one of his mother's maids of honor. He determined to rid himself of Maria, and after much delay, coerced the patriarch Tarasius into pronouncing a formal sentence of divorce. Irene's unfortunate tool disappeared into a nunnery. Constantine, thereupon, was free to espouse Theodota, but public sympathy was strong for the divorced empress, and it cannot be said that it was unjustified. The clergy voiced it energetically, prominent among them being Plato, abbot of the great monastery of Sacudion in Bithynia, and the afterwards celebrated Theodore Studita, the latter himself a relative of the new empress. Constantine attempted coercion, but they would not give way, and public opinion was entirely with them. A.D. 795. Constantine, having married a wife of his own choosing, went to the east on an expedition against the Saracens, leaving the field clear for the intrigues of his mother. He ravaged Cilicia and defeated a Saracen army at Anusan. Next year, Cardam of Bulgaria, presuming on his great victory in 792, sent an insulting demand for tribute to the emperor. Constantine, in wild rage, collected the Asiatic themes and sent the Bulgarian a parcel of horse dung. One cannot admire his taste with the message. Here is a tribute well fit for thee. Come and take more, if thou choosest. But as thou art old and mayst grow tired in the journey, I will meet thee at Marcelon, a border fort. So great was the emperor's strength 
that Cardam fled across the Danube. Constantin, after wasting the country, marched home. In the absence of many of the Asiatic troops, the Saracens pushed another of their ineffectual raids up to Amorium. In 797, the emperor again took the field and invaded Cilicia, but his mother's intrigues among the general officers ensured the futility of the expedition. On his return, Irene, who had prepared all for his deposition, carried her design into effect. Constantine was seized by his own attendants, but escaped for the time, and might have again gained the upper hand. But he seems to have been dumbfounded by his mother's conduct, and made no great effort. He was finally captured, taken to Constantinople, and blinded with a refinement of barbarity in the Porphyry chamber in which he had been born. It seems probable that he died soon after. Such was the end of the last emperor of the great Isaurian house, to which the empire had owed more than to any other of its imperial lines. The only remaining scion of the family was Constantine's little daughter, Euphrosyne, whom her grandmother spared. Irene had now attained the object of her unprincipled ambition. She was still only in the middle life, but she would seem to have expended all her energy in her years of intriguing for her son's ruin. At all events, she gave herself up to self-indulgence and display, and handed over the business of the state to seven eunuchs, hardly exercising even a nominal superintendence over them. Her reign was in the highest degree unfortunate and disgraceful. The Caliph Harun again invaded the empire and made his way without opposition to the walls of Ephesus, wasting the Anatolic and Thracian themes and carrying off numbers of captives. Irene's miserable government again purchased peace, and Harun was willing enough to withdraw, for the Khazars had burst through the Caucasian passes and were wasting Armenia. In 799 there was a revolt in Hellas of the Slavs settled in the interior, which never appears to have been put down as long as Irene lived, and in 801 Kasim, Harun's son, again threatened Asia Minor. At home the only event of importance was a conspiracy in 797, having as its object the enthronement of one of the mutilated sons of Constantine the Sixth, who were living in exile at Athens. It was discovered the four miserable men who had lost their tongues were now blinded, and the whole five exiled to Panormus. The most notable event of Irene's reign was the natural result of her usurpation. The West had for many years looked more and more to Karl the Great, who was now supreme, from the North Sea to the Vulturnus, and from Barcelona beyond the Elbe. On Christmas Day, A.D. 800, he was crowned Roman Emperor of the West by Pope Leo III in St. Peter's Basilica at Rome. There is no need to discuss the legality of the act. It was a perfectly natural, probably a long-contemplated one. The Pope could allege with perfect truth that the legitimate Roman Emperor had been unjustly deposed, and that the rule of his blood-stained mother 
was a monstrous anomaly, rightly or wrongly, and the writer can see no valid argument against it. The deed was done. The result of Irene's unnatural action was that any union between East and West was finally rendered hopeless. In 802, the end came. Irene had alienated all classes. Even the Iconodules had no feeling in her favor. Internally, the administration of her creatures was wasteful and bad. The Slavs were in open revolt. The empire was humiliated in East and West. The Empress cared not. Her treasurer, Nicephorus, a descendant of the Arab kings of Gazan, gained over some of her eunuchs and attendants, seized her at night, and hurried her across to a convent on one of the princess islands in the Propontis, which she had herself founded. Not a blow was struck for her, and Nicephorus was proclaimed Augustus without opposition. Irene was soon taken from her retreat to another convent in Lesbos, where she is said to have been deprived of the bare necessities of life, so that she was forced to earn a scanty subsistence by spinning. It may be so. It is impossible to feel any pity for her. She survived her fall only a few months. The results of the labors of the great Isaurians, which even the disasters under Irene had not materially affected, were that the empire had been firmly welded together, that it had been thoroughly reorganized and in a manner regenerated. The political decline under Irene does not imply decreasing material prosperity. On the contrary, there is every evidence that it was steadily on the increase. In Finley's words, the true historical feature of this memorable period is the aspect of a declining empire saved by the moral vigor developed in society, and of the central authority struggling to restore national prosperity. This is no more than the truth. People and princes did their duty, manfully and well, and their efforts secured for the state three centuries and more of prosperous life. End of section 10. Recording by Mike Botez.